This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, January 20th, 2019, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Today we are going to be studying the Word of God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, I think. And uh, this is what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always do good to one another and to everyone. This is God's Word. Praise be to God. Well, thank you for being with us here this morning. Um, I'm going to pray as I typically do, and you might wonder why we pray. It's been said, and I can't remember who said it, somebody older and smarter than me, that prayer isn't preparing you for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Uh, and so we want to make sure that our services in experience prayer and value prayer as we value the Word of God. So uh, I'm going to pray, and uh, if you would bow with me, go before our King. Heavenly Father, before the foundation of the world, You are and always have been God. You created the universe with a word, and your promises exist always and forever. You are faithful even when we are not. You see clearly even when we do not. You and your will are always good, and ours is not. And even though the storm rages around us, Lord, in this broken world, you are there with us bringing your good purposes to pass. So we gather to be reminded of that today, and we need to remember, Lord, the cross. We need the cross. We need to remember Jesus Christ and Him crucified, for it reminds us that You are not distant from our suffering, but in fact are in the middle of it, in the midst of our worst troubles and fears. And there You are bringing Your plan to pass, not despite those things, but actually through the hardship for Your glory and for our joy. We believe Your faithful love reaches to the heaven. Your faithfulness is as high as the clouds. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your judgments are like the deepest sea. And Though Your Word declares that Your ways are above our ways and Your thoughts are above our thoughts, though Your Word declares that You are working despite what we see, that Your plans will come to pass, we confess our unfaithfulness and our self-dependence. We confess that we believe we are stronger and wiser and better than we actually are, and we confess that self-rule tempts us to act on our own impatiently and imperfectly. Forgive us for our foolishness and for our rebellion. Though we are struggling with our flesh, Lord, we praise You, for we are thankful. There are many practical things for us to be thankful for in our lives. Countless things, things that we take for granted, and as a church as well. But this morning we give you thanks for your patience with us. 
for you do not immediately give anyone what they deserve. For those who do not yet believe, Lord, you are patient, giving them mercy. For those who now believe in your Son, you have already given tremendous grace. So we thank you for saving us. We thank you for changing us. We thank you for giving us brothers and sisters in Christ who have the courage to admonish us and the love to encourage us and the power to help us. Now we help us, Lord, as we look to You this morning. Help us not to look to others to find only what we can find ultimately in Christ. Help us to re- not resist one another's counsel as it comes. Help us to be still and to wait for You and to patiently trust in Your work. Lord, complete the work You began in us. Remind us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, that our weapons are not of this world. Help us to commit our ways to You, Lord, to trust You and pray, Lord, that You will act on our behalf. And as we learn through Your Word this morning, Holy Spirit, speak to us words of conviction or words of comfort. Meet us here, Jesus. We need to hear from You, Jesus. Holy Spirit, pierce our hearts with Your truth that we might believe it and live it Hope in it and share it. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we uh, are working our way verse by verse through the first letter to the Thessalonians. Uh, It's a letter written to a new church plant in a very old Greek city. And the author of this letter, the Apostle Paul and his team, uh, as many of you know, had been violently run out of town shortly after the church had been planted, and months later he sent Timothy back to check on this young church plant. And what he found is though persecution had continued and it had been very difficult for them to stand for their faith, many possibly had even been killed for it, he returned to Paul with a largely favorable report about their faith and about their love for one another. And so this letter is his response to that report of what he heard. So last week we learned that there were two different ways to live in light of the end of the world being so near, either as a child of light or a child of darkness, as one who is awake or one who is asleep. And the wakeful life is one where we are walking carefully, walking in the teachings of Christ as we watchfully wait for His imminent return. More than just a state of mind though, this watchfulness is supposed to evidence itself out in our daily lives. What we do should evidence an anticipation of Christ coming. And we learn now as he's ending his letter that this is actually a community effort. This is something we do together. That part of staying awake is actually helping others stay awake. Figuratively giving them the elbow, if you will, to keep them focused on what is most important. Because more than an organization with a bunch of programs, the church is this organism. Most often the Bible describes the church as a body with interdependent parts all working together. Usually the word church, it it literally means and describes a, a local assembly like a household family, people called out of the world 
a group of people who, who decide and commit to lead and to serve and to love one another as they follow Christ together. And in this letter, Paul describes himself in different ways, once as a mother, a nursing mother, once as a father, and then several times as a brother. In fact, he uses the term brothers or brothers 17 times throughout this very short letter. And he emphasizes, obviously, the familial nature of relationships that exist in the church. As with earthly families, with all of our families, there are different roles and responsibilities to ensure that the family functions the way that God has designed it to function. So every family member is expected to do their part. And as the younger members of the family grow, they begin to contribute differently and and perhaps more significantly to the work of the family. And at times, they help one another. The whole family works through difficult struggles together. No one works independently through their own brokenness. It's a team effort, a group effort. And it's the same with the family of God. But because the idea of family in today's culture naturally includes concepts of authority and concepts of interdependence on one another, we struggle in the church because the culture struggles with the idea of family in those ways. In our American culture, we worship an idol of independence or do it ourselfism. The ideas of personal freedom and liberty have gone way beyond these healthy expressions of just individuality and have now encouraged this idea of self-expression that has devolved itself into an unhealthy form of self-reliance and autonomy. We don't need anybody. I don't need anybody. I can do this myself. Solomon, King Solomon, the wisest, I should say second wisest man under Christ who ever lived, wrote the book of Proverbs, which is wisdom from somewhat of a younger king about how we ought live. And he says in Proverbs 18, verse 1, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. Isolation's bad, not good, which echoes the idea that was taught before the world fell, where God said it's not good for man to be alone, and it's still not good. As an old man, reflecting back, so he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which we'll begin to study some point here in the next months. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes 4, so he's like a grandfather now looking back and learning from his experiences. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him for a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's the reason why we called our network Three Strand, right? Realize as a church, it's great to be autonomous until it's not. 
until you need accountability, until you need help, until you can't accomplish your mission you know, by yourself. God has made us for community. And in the Northwest, that's really seemingly um, reversed to that. We like our independence, our individuality. Let's close off and stay in our homes while it's raining. Let's put on our, our iPods and we no longer listen to like, you know, back in the day when we grew up, right? TV, there was ABC, NBC, CBS. Like, that's it. There was AM and FM radio. That's it. And now we can separate ourselves into all kinds of little factions and TV shows that are hundreds and different music, which there's thousands. We were not designed to love everything and be uniform, but we were designed to be community. God designed us only to grow, heal, and work as the member of a body. How many arms separated from a body have you ever seen full of life? Strong. Growing. Never. The body of Christ exists to display the manifold wisdom of God as we help one another grow up into the fullness of manhood in Christ. According to Ephesians 4, this growing up is most often accomplished through the speaking of the truth of God in love to one another. That's how it's largely accomplished. But you have to be with somebody in order to speak and hear the truth. Close enough to hear and speak the truth. While essential, this is not easy. It is not easy to speak the truth and love to somebody. And it requires a Christ-like patience by those with the courage to speak and a Christ-like humility for those who are spoken to. A Christ-like patience to speak and a Christ-like humility to receive what is spoken. So, if we look at verse 12 and 13, Paul begins to talk really in practical ways to this church, and to help this church and ours, he begins by addressing the relationship between really the, the sheep and the shepherds, the pastors and the members. It's kind of odd sometimes to be preaching something about pastors and the relationship to the members, but God wrote it, so I'm just the messenger. Don't get bugged. But the pastors are those who are largely responsible for speaking these truthful words in love. They're not the only ones that do it, but they're largely responsible and do it perhaps more than others. None less than preaching or teaching, but also leading in other ways. But this is what he writes in verse 12. He says, We ask you, brothers... To respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So if you, again, this is a letter written to real people, real church in a real place. So we're like, What's going on here? Well, apparently there are members of the church who were reluctant to receive any rules or instructions from the appointed leaders of the church. As a request then, Paul pleads and says, respect these men. He says, respect those who labor among you. Respect those who are over you in the Lord. 
Respect those who admonish you. So there's a description of the people he's talking about. Those who labor, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish you. We'll never know why uh, or if Paul wrote this because there were good leaders being disrespected or possibly bad leaders doing some disrespectful things. I think it's interesting though that Paul makes the request without qualification. He doesn't say, respect the leaders who deserve it. It's kind of like a marriage, right? Love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's no parenthetical that says, when she's lovable. Right? Respect your husband as long as he's respectable. It's not what it says. So Paul says, look, there's men that have been put in position and you are to respect them. He simply says there's these hardworking pastors who are teaching, who are pastoring, who are correcting, and they're not just to be coldly respected. He actually says they're to be warmly appreciated. In his pastoral epistles, Paul had taught elsewhere, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So he puts a little qualification. Those who are ruling well, be worthy of of double honor, now, not given double honor. It's a disposition. It's not like actual, here, you get a double paycheck this month. Okay? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, he says. So, we have to be careful because in the prosperity gospel world, there is a sense of do not touch God's anointed. And it's been twisted. This isn't about the untouchable anointed who never make mistakes. Pastors should not be idolized any more than they should be demonized. But they do have a unique position in the church. To say that the pastors are over you is not to say they should be respected and emphasizing the authority of the office as the reason for that. On the contrary, it's actually respecting because of the eternal nature of their efforts in the life of the church. The kind of work that they're doing. Now, even though, and I've already described it earlier, every member is working to contribute to the church family. I was super encouraged and moved in one of those tight throat kinds of ways as I saw members of our church on Friday come to clean the church. Work that most people take for granted until things get messy. Right? And then suddenly like, oh, well, someone should clean us up. Yeah, did you know that someone does? Most of the time. Without being paid. Like there are contributions being made to the church that are valuable and important um, that are um, in many ways um, no less significant than what anyone else is doing, even the pastor. That said, as every member is contributing in different ways, some just through prayer, some through cleaning, some through serving your kids right now, some through making sure coffee is made, 
The pastors are doing something unique. They're watching over souls. The author of Hebrews writes it this way in the 13th chapter in the 17th verse saying, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. As members of a church, you will not have to give an account for how you pastor the church. You certainly are responsible and give an account for what you do. But as one of the pastors and elders and leaders here, I will give a different kind of account. There's a weight to it. Inherent in this word used for respect is actually the idea of knowing. You'll see it, you'll see it used or interpreted, translated in different translations as knowing. John Stott said it well that pastoral care is like parental care. And this is why Paul also says in this text, esteem them very highly in love. So I say it's not just cold respect. There's a warm appreciation. In the book of Acts, Luke actually, and I think it's like chapter 20, he identifies two Thessalonican leaders by name. They had really strange names, not important. But there's two guys in name. It's like Bob and Henry, right? Okay, so they're, they're there. And I bring that up because I always find it quite troubling when members of churches complain about leadership, about eldership, about preaching, as if they're criticizing impersonal concepts. Well, you know, I've, had, I've sat down with people who like, I just don't know about the leadership of the church. I, I, I'm one of the lead, leaders. I don't know if I can trust the leadership. You mean you don't know if you can trust Mark? You can trust Sam? We're talking about real people, not just these concepts of leadership. The pastors and leaders of Restoration Road, for example, they have real names and they have real stories. Real families, real lives. And you should endeavor to know them. You will not be best friends with all of us. We'll not be best friends with you. That's a lot to ask anybody. But you should know them. The Bible actually says you should imitate their faith. So I guess you should probably know them enough to know what their faith is like. And that doesn't mean, though, putting them under a microscope 24-7 or comparing them to Jesus. Right? But it would be a failure to esteem these men in love because of the fruitfulness of their labor as opposed to their faithfulness in their labor. Right? The value of a pastor and an elder and a leader is not in look what you produced. Because what I've learned as a pastor and as a parent that God is in charge of the fruit. I really wish I could control a lot of things. Right? And the only thing that I can ultimately control as a parent or a pastor or a man is my faithfulness. And even that falls. But when it falls, I can be faithful to confess and admit that I fall and be still faithful, if that makes sense. So I'm not saying 
Respect the pastors because they're in charge. And respect the pastors if the church goes well. There are men who are being faithful to watch over your souls to, on a monthly, if not weekly basis, go before the Lord and name the names of members of our church to take them before the Lord. Esteem them in love. And according to Paul here, he says, the faithful pastor admonishes. That was one of the qualifiers. Those who are laboring, those who are over you in the Lord, and those who admonish. The faithful pastor warns against bad behavior, gives gentle instruction, teaches about consequences, even to the point of having to exercise church discipline at times. And I would say that's not the pastor exercising church discipline. It's the pastor leading the church in exercising church discipline. This is not easy. I like to be liked. Everyone does. But I have found that when you have to admonish a brother or sister in Christ, or you have to admonish somebody as a pastor, that becomes an incredibly powerful lightning rod for criticism. And so it's very tempting to not do it. But that's unfaithful. It's faithful to admonish. It's faithful to stir and to encourage and to push and to warn. That's faithful. And yes, you can do it um, not gently. You can do it for wrong motivations. But it needs to be done Truthfully and in love. And even when you do it perfectly, you may be rejected for it. Criticized for it. I have first-hand experience with this. As a pastor, as a parent, as a brother, but that's faithful. It's faithful. About his own personal mission, Paul wrote in his letter to the Colossians, he goes, this is what I've committed myself to. He said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone. Part of His proclamation is warning. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, works hard, struggles with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. The admonishment that a pastor gives or a brother and sister in Christ give to one another must not be harsh words, but that must be hard truth. Pastor and theologian Leon Morris said it this way, while its tone is brotherly, it's big brotherly. Right? And so Paul finally at the end of verse 13 there says, be at peace among yourselves. And essentially, I believe, and I may be wrong, but I believe he's telling the membership of this particular church in a publicly read letter, right? Stop complaining and criticizing your leaders. And that's not like some secret way of me telling you that, right? I'm not, try- I'm not that sly or manipulative. But that's happening in this church, and you know that happens in churches whether it's happening now in ours or will someday. 
It happens in all churches because it's very easy to blame and to point and go, that's the problem. And honestly, at times, it is very wise and good and righteous for the membership to rebuke the pastor who is in sin. But that's not what's being talked about here. To return to the second part of the 17th verse in the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, after it says, they'll give an account, they're watching over your souls. Let them do this with joy. Isn't that interesting? They're keeping a watch over your souls and giving an account before God. Would you let them do this with joy? Interesting. It seems as if the members of a church can make it difficult for the pastor to do their job with joy. And later on, he'll say, pray for your leaders. And I know that many in our church do. And that was one thing I remember Mark stating. We were sitting in an elders meeting or elders retreat at some point, and he said, I want you to remember how blessed we are. You know, it was probably after me bemoaning something like, oh, the world's falling apart. And Mark said, remember one thing, how blessed we are because there are many people praying for us. And it's very true. And we feel it and we know it. So I can't imagine my life looking like without you praying. Dang. So thank you. Look at verse 14. So Paul seems to shift his instructions here. And it's possible, although I can't prove this, but it's possible that he now turns to address the leaders who he was just talking about telling the congregation to respect, respect and esteem them. Because he, he says, brothers again, right? Now, Ephesians 4.11, if you read that at some point, you'll see that pastors and shepherds are given to help equip the church for the ministry. They're not given to do all the ministry, but to equip the church to fulfill the ministry. Ministry is both the building up and the out of God's church. But the ministry of the church, according to Ephesians 4, is not fulfilled by one man or a group of men who are pastors. It's fulfilled by God-ordained leaders equipping members to lead in their homes, to lead in their church, and to lead in their community. In other words, even if this text is beginning to address the leaders and going, now here's how you should lead after I've just told you to esteem them or to be esteemed, I think it's also instructive to every member because in some sense, we're all responsible to lead in this church. Everyone is responsible to speak the truth and love to one another. And as one commentator wrote, mutual discipline must be exercised by all of its members. It is wrong to leave all this to the pastors and elders. Now, in verse 14, he says this, We urge you, brothers, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So he's reading this to the church so it can apply to the leaders. This is how you should minister to these people, but also to how people should minister to one another. It's a very practical verse. It's a, it's a rich, full verse. And it talks to three different kinds of people that are in this church. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And it gets very specific. Like, this is how you deal with these people. So he says, admonish the idol. Now, 
Paul talks about the idol a lot in this letter and in the next letter to Thessalonica. It seems to be a problem. He talked about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12. through But the idol are those people, and it seems like a large contingent of people, who are not working. And in not working, they're actually mooching. They are the ones who are not encouraging, but they're gossiping. The ones who are not helping, but meddling. These are not the ones who are incapable of helping and contributing to the church. These are those who are unwilling to contribute to the church. These are the entitled. These are the whiners. These are the consumers. These are the cynics who take everything and give nothing but their opinions. That's who Paul's talking about in this church. The idol. In his second letter, Paul says that anyone who refuses to work beyond words should not eat. And at the end of his letter in 1 Timothy, he says, these people are worse than non-believers. These are the idol he's talking about. And so there are those idol in the church in Thessalonica that need to be warned. That need to be rebuked personally, strongly, and sometimes publicly. If they don't respond personally, because they're just taking, they're just gossiping, they're sinning ultimately, hurting the church. And so we go to them personally. And they're warned by an individual. And they're warned again if they don't respond by fellow members. And then eventually, the family is warned about them. That's what Paul tells us. We are to admonish the idol. And none of this is for the purpose of just punishment. It's for the purpose of and hope for repentance and restoration. It seems harsh to deal with the idol this way. But if they're truly the idol, and what I mean is that they're not the faint-hearted, if they're truly the idol, and we'll talk about the difference, if they're truly the idol, then you have to understand the kind of sin that idleness breeds in a person and in the family. It hurts everyone. Gossip hurts everyone. Consuming hurts everyone. It builds resentment in others. Entitlement, not a good thing. And so, we are functioning in such a way to go. We are growing together in Christ and those who are idle need to be rebuked. Back to Proverbs again, 27.6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A brother looks at an idle brother and says, I love you enough to not let you stay in this place. But Paul also warns us in Galatians 6 that anyone who is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we are to restore. We are to admonish. And that can be done with gentleness. And it can also be done in sin. And so we're careful. But we're also faithful. Right? There's a tension there. I know I've got to speak. How do I speak? Well, I guess he should pray. He should be patient. He should wait. He should counsel. Then he should speak. And not just speak. That will probably be a mistake. 
But then he talks about the faint-hearted. So you got the idol, they're to be admonished, and in the church, you are to encourage the faint-hearted. More than likely, Paul is speaking about the people he spoke again in 1 Thessalonians 4 who have experienced great loss. Possibly the death of a loved one. Those who are faint-hearted, what do they feel? Hopeless. With grief. They might look like they're idle. But perhaps they're just grieving deeply. And they need to be encouraged. They need to be built up. This is why at the conclusion of the great passage about grieving with hope in the resurrection, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. There's faint-hearted people who are dealing with real loss, real forms of suffering. The word faint-hearted is, means little-spirited. And it denotes this idea of a deep wound that has discouraged them. So whether it be the loss of a loved one, which is a deep wound, sometimes it's the loss of a job, sometimes it's the loss of a dream. There will be many whose souls need to be encouraged and to find hope in God. In his despair, King David kind of self-talk, preached to his own heart, and gives us kind of some instruction on how we should encourage others. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Paul teaches us in that same letter to Galatians that we are to bear one another's burdens. must be careful to encourage the faint-hearted though by directing them to hope in Christ and His promises so as to not make a Savior of ourselves. That's a real danger at times. Wanting to do everything we can to lift their spirits and we get in the way of Christ because we're not encouraging by pointing to Jesus. We're pointing to other things and sometimes even ourselves. So we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Give them hope. Build them up. And then you have the third category where he says, help the weak. More than likely, Paul is speaking to those who are struggling with sin. And by that I mean perhaps sexual sin. There are many people in the church today who are struggling with sexual sin. And by that I mean struggling with addiction, struggling with something that they hate and they love at the same time. That they want to fight, but they feel like they're getting defeated constantly. I would argue that these are perhaps the weak. It is a joy to hear the confession of a sinner who wants to change. Who wants something greater and better. There are few things more powerful than the restoration of a repentant brother or sister who finds victory in such sin. But in contrast, you know what? There's few things more frustrating than a weak sinner, as Paul is talking about here, who like a dog goes back to their vomit again and again and again and again and again. And the temptation when this happens is to rebuke strongly. And at times that might be necessary, but I would argue that we often run to that too quickly because we don't recognize they're weak. 
And you know what happens when you rebuke a weak person? You destroy them. And I confess that I probably over 13 years of ministry have done that a time or two. Hastily rebuking when they needed help. Not intentionally, but perhaps impatiently. All too often we proclaim the truth without love. And this doesn't help the weak. This is why Paul commends particularly leaders in the church saying, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And check this out. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. When you see a brother and sister in Christ caught in the snare of the devil, caught in a trap, the worst thing you say is like, why'd you step in the trap? Idiot. Right? That day may come if they step in the trap 17 times in a row. But we have to be careful that we are not telling the person who is weak to be strong when they're unable to be. Sin is a trap, and you have to view it as a trap because at some point you were in that trap. And helping the weak out of a trap takes great patience. If you just rip a foot out of a trap, you'll do lots of damage. And so this is why Paul writes, be patient with them all. Be patient with the idle. Be patient with the faint-hearted. Be patient with the weak. And that's hard. It's hard for me, uh, a type A type of, come on, do it, just go, fix it, don't. Ugh. You can imagine where my parenting struggles come from. Right? It's hard to be patient. And I've said it before and, and I'll say it again that speaking the truth in love is about speaking the right words at the right time and the right way. But I think it's also about making sure you speak the right words at the right time and the right way to the right person. And by that, I mean when you're not thinking about the person you're speaking to, who is this? Are they the idol? Are they the faint-hearted? Are they the weak? You know what you're thinking about? Yourself. Proverbs 18, verse 2. Proverbs 18 is full of this kind of stuff. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I'll tell you what's wrong with you. I'll tell you what you need to do. You're not thinking about what that person actually needs. More than foolish, there's a real danger in sharing your opinion if it means admonishing the weak or encouraging the idle or rebuking the faint-hearted. If you get those mixed up, it's really dangerous and harmful. Last thing an idol needs, encouragement. Right? You know what? i like to encourage you to stop gossiping. You know what? You, your entitlement is kind of uh, 
affect, everyone's being resentful uh, to you, so I like to encourage, like, no, they need to be rebuked. They need to be admonished. But as I said, the faint-hearted, someone who's experienced great loss, oh, you don't trust God? You know God's got a plan for this. Where's your faith? Uh, probably not the thing to say, maybe ever, at least when they're faint-hearted. See how if you get those mixed up? So patience has to do with making sure you're saying it to the right person, the right thing. Because as Proverbs 18 also says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. This is why Paul warns us in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Is that what you're dedicated to? I want to give grace to this person. I confess that it's not always my priority. We must not be silent, but we must be patient and careful. So how do we do this? Well, I would argue that the depth of our patience is directly related to our understanding of God's patience with us. You realize that God is patient, meaning He doesn't give us what we immediately deserve, ever. Only when we embrace the Gospel of grace will we have actually the strength to respond and not react. This is why in verse 15, the last verse says, See that no one repays anyone for evil, or evil for evil, but always seek to good to one another and to everyone. So the impatient person is the reactive person. The patient person is the responsive person. If I'm impatient, I'm going to react based on how I feel, what I think needs to happen. If I am patient, I'm going to respond to what I think this person needs to hear according to Scripture. Be it idleness, or faint-heartedness, or sinfulness, without thinking the impatient person responds foolishly because they respond selfishly. And they respond selfishly when they forget the Gospel. Particularly how God has responded to you in your sin, in your brokenness, in your idleness. I'm the idol. Think about this. So we can imagine Paul's letter. It's being read aloud in the gathering of the church. Admonish the idol, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak. And when it's read, what does everyone do? Yeah. Who's idle around here that I can admonish? Who is weak that I can help? Who is the faint-hearted that needs encouragement? We're looking around, right? Who are these people that I need to help and fix and rebuke? <clears throat> we'll only be able to admonish the idol with truth and gentleness when we accept that we were the idol that needed admonishment from Jesus. Yes, Jesus loves us. But, man, we were takers. Entitled. Selfish. 
offering nothing but a bunch of foolish words. And the Lord went to the cross to reveal the truth about us. Saying this is who we actually are. The Gospel is good news when you only understand the bad news. And the bad news is, I am a broken sinner saved by grace. I am more broken than I'll ever know and admit. I am lost, I am unable, and I am unwilling. Like we, we have this idea of like, I'm broken. Yes, you're broken. Yes, you're weak. You're also rebellious. You turned your back on God, though may not feel like you did. And so I, I am that one who needs admonishment. And Jesus admonished me on the cross. He says, here you are. This is who you are. You're, you're so bad that the Son of God has to shed blood for you. The Bible actually calls us dead in our sin. And that's a hard lesson to learn. I've been told uh, more than once, like, man, you talk about sin a lot. Like, because it makes grace that much bigger. If I don't understand my brokenness, I feel like, yeah, thanks, Jesus. That's a, I appreciate the favor, like dying for me and stuff. That's cool. Do you understand the depth of depravity that we are? It's hard to learn, though, that. It's hard to be told that, that you're not as awesome as you thought you were. Right? And that's pretty much Jesus says, like, newsflash, you are not awesome. You are not as strong as you thought you are. You are not as wise as you thought you are. You're not as good as you thought you are, even though you've been comparing to other bad people. And guess what? When you get to that moment, when you realize how broken you are, how the fact that you cannot save yourself, that can be despairing. I could say that could be hopeless. Faint-hearted would be a good word to describe it. What am I going to do? I, I am... I can't save myself, let alone anybody else. I'm, I'm wrecked. If I'm honest about my sinfulness, it can feel pretty hopeless. And this is where Paul admits he's at in Romans 7. I love it. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! He's like, I know what I should be doing, but my body keeps doing the very opposite and sinning. I am so wretched. And what does he say? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus. Thanks be to Jesus. You know what Jesus comes and does? He goes, yeah, you're really messed up. And I'm going to save you. He speaks hope into us. He says, yeah, you can't, you can't save yourself. No way, man. I'll be good. Like, you're already bad. You're way behind the ball. You're not even on the star chart. So He speaks hope to us. We were faint-hearted. You should have been faint-hearted. If you haven't been faint-hearted, you understand the depth of your sin. But He does more than that. This is where we get helping the weak, right? As we understand the Gospel, He doesn't just speak hope like the world. How does the world speak hope? Have hope! You can do it! Believe in yourself! That's not the Gospel. Jesus comes and He gives certain hope because it's not based off of me. 
He says, not have hope. You can do it. Believe in yourself. He says, I've done it. Believe in me. I've done it. There's nothing to do. Jesus not only saves me from the penalty of sin, He saves me from the power of sin, and He helps me enjoy the fullness of my salvation. He never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He never gives up on me. He sent me the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to comfort me and convict me and teach me and lead me and carry me and strengthen me and remind me that His grace is sufficient for His power is made perfect in weakness. He helps the weak. So we can be patient with one another because Christ was patient with us and is patient with us. Jesus helped us so that we might help one another. And that's why in that last verse He said, do good to one another and to everyone. That's why we say we're restored to restore. We are restored to each other and we're restored to the world as we endeavor, even with them, to speak the right words at the right time in the right way to the right person. For faith comes from hearing and that by the Word of God. And so as Paul closes in Galatians chapter 6, let us not grow weary of doing good. And that's in a passage that follows verses about restoring and finding people caught in sin. He said, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we don't give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Let us be patient. And suffice to say, you know what patience really is about? Long-suffering. Enduring. Pressing through patiently waiting for God to do what only He can do in the hearts of those we love and doing so with truth. Let's pray.